0: creative company is so delicious,
1: and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. Alain Malay has worked with so many fabulous people. He's an amazing piano player, keyboard player, arranger, producer. He's worked with Jonathan Brook, Mili Bermejo, Jamie Haddad, Paul Simon. He's got so many cool stories. We've got a real nice version on YouTube. What is it like to be on tour? What is it like to be in the recording studio? How do you make that leap from, I play with my friends to, I'm playing with amazing top-of-the-line musicians in the world. The music and the playing is exactly the same. How you frame it in your mind is everything. Allah. Hey. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm pretty excellent. How are you? Thank you so much for hopping on. Uh,
2: Sure, no problem.
1: Well, I've always wanted to talk to you because you're just so cool and you've done so many cool things. And I've emailed you many times over the years to pick your brain or to hang with you a little bit. So I
2: really appreciate you doing this. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. It's not uh, If if I didn't respond, believe me, it's not intentional. It's just, uh, you know, um, I don't take myself too seriously. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, but
1: I remember reading that uh, you had attended
2: Berkeley. What year was that that you went there? Eighty three. Really? Now, for, yeah. So for now, for uh, the, I can say this now because it's, it's actually not a secret. But I graduated in two thousand ten. <laughs> <laughs> because, like a lot of my peers, well, first of all, I was. Um, uh, uh, it was very expensive for my uh, for my parents to pay for Berkeley, which, by today's standards, of course, is uh, ridiculous. Because I just I know came back from France. I just sold my family home, and um, and I found the bills from Berkeley, and uh, I was doing a diploma. So at the time, it was like sixteen hundred dollars a semester or something like that, right? Um, and uh, so it was, uh, but still, it was a lot of money for my parents. Um, and so, in today's dollars, it would be a lot more. Yeah, of course. So I, you know, I I stayed as long as I could. In 83. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I stayed a long time, but but back then you could also, as a foreigner, you could take part-time very early. So I did that to, to lessen the bills. And then I left... Um, to go on the road Um, and I had like something like 16 credits left. Mm. And then I started teaching. Uh, when I moved back from New York, I started teaching in 2003 uh, at Berkeley. And um, when my, my dad's health started declining, I realized that um, they had a, an empty folder um, at home that was the folder from my graduation because I did walk, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't finish, <laughs> so there was no diploma in it. So I reached out to uh, my chairs with the chairs of my my major, and they were like. All right, let's see. And it turns out that I was actually teaching the classes that I hadn't had taken. And then I had some piano proficiencies to uh finish. <laughs> I, was also, I was also teaching the piano department and uh, th- <laughs> thankfully uh Stephanie Tiernan, who um uh, was Stephanie Plishek well but at the time, but uh, yes you know, um had stayed my teacher throughout the years. I kept coming back to take lessons with her, even when I was living in New York. Oh, wow. So she gave me credit by exam, basically. Uh, nice. Fantastic. So I did, uh, I did graduate in 2010.
1: Yeah, That's me. fantastic. Good for you. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I
1: remember coming up from New Jersey and uh, being a new student in 1978. And I mm-hmm. graduated in 82. And the psychology department did the same thing. When they saw all the high-level classes I had taken in high school, they just gave me the credits and <laughs> oh, wow. helped me get through a few academics that way. But um, who were you? So you going graduated
2: on? right before I arrived, basically. Yes,
1: yes, okay. and I started teaching in '84.
2: Oh my God, you've been there 40 a million years! Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! Hey, I mean, listen, I uh, I'm not knocking it, by the way, because uh, Um, this is a conversation that I have often, uh, with, with friends and foes. Um, (laughs) I, I, I I love Berkeley. I still love Berkeley. Right. Uh, Me too. I, I, I love what it stands for. And I am convinced that if it hadn't been for Berkeley, I wouldn't be a musician today. I mean, if I hadn't come to the States, I wouldn't be a musician today.
1: Really? What would you have done?
2: I don't know. Probably died early, or or. <laughs> I, uh, or, or
0: I hope not. <laughs> or,
2: or, I, I I don't know what else. I I, I just um I connected with the uh, American mentality of going about making music. It just it just made sense to me. Mm. Um, and Berkeley. I mean, if you look at my career. Being kind of a jack of all trades, uh, Berkeley was a perfect environment for that. And it still is. I mean, there's no other school where you can go and, you know, study with top notch teachers on your instrument and still like take classes in all sorts of other things and be surrounded by people that are going to be great arrangers, great engineers, great, you know, everything. Yeah. And and uh for a second it was confusing when I first came because you know I came from France, you cross the ocean, you wanna, you know, I was an average player. There were people here like you know, Dave Kikowski and I don't know, I mean Christian Jacobs, like some of my peers, you know, like mm. I was I was the worst of the bunch and uh and uh I was really depressed, but then once I got, you know, once I was informed that maybe I could get to work and, you know, and get better, um, I did get to work and, uh, but for a minute, you know, I, so I, I was so obsessed with becoming the best jazz pianist that I could be, that anybody who was not a jazz musician, I was not particularly interested in. Right. And it wasn't until like a couple of years later when I started realizing that I had interests in many other things, and that being at Berkeley, I was going to get an opportunity to, to do all those things. I started paying attention to all these people who were not, you know, beboppers and whatever. Yeah. And, and realized that they were all turning up in all sorts of capacities all over the world, you know, in as, you know, as, well, you name it, basically. So, I loved Berkeley then for that and, and I still do I think you know uh um, there's there's a lot of fine schools out there, but if you're somebody who has a mind for a lot of different areas of the music um world, um then I think it's an amazing place to be. Yes.
0: Who did you go on the road with that you didn't finish Berkeley right away?
2: Um,
0: uh, who was it at the time?
2: Oh, it was uh, the story. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, because yeah, I, I stayed there a long time. And it was, uh, I split in, like I said, you could take part-time very early on. So I stretched it out. Yeah. Because you know, I was really busy playing. Um but I mean, you know, the whole thing was uh, just a surprise to me because there was this myth when I left France. uh, People talked and they still talk a lot about and talk a lot of bullshit about America. uh, The same (laughs) way Americans talk a lot of bullshit about France. Basically, nobody knows what's going on anyway. But uh, in (laughs) France, one of the myths was that at every gig, and and this is going to sound like a weird thing to say, but this is true. Every gig, there were representatives of the of immigration and the union. and if you were a foreigner, you would get sent back home right yeah. away. <laughs> um, they, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating that was the myth. That was the idea. yeah, uh, but, you know, and apparently, Thank you from doing it. It was fear. Yeah, so so I came here, I didn't have a suit, I didn't have uh, <laughs> a keyboard. I figured I would stay for one semester, <laughs> one year, and uh and that would be it, um, because I needed to work. And um and lo and behold, I mean, I still remember my first gig, you know, and and uh I started gigging probably my second month uh at berkeley not big gigs mind you but little pickup gigs and stuff like that and i realized that oh you know the only um thing that's going to be a determining factor is how many tunes i know and how punctual i am or something <laughs> like that so yeah. so basically that was that was it and and that was um so i started working and i was you know eking a living and uh um, and so I started taking part-time as soon as I could so that my parents wouldn't have to, uh, you know, lose, uh, their house just to put me through music school. Wow. And so I dropped, I, yeah, I went on the road. I think it was 89 when we started, uh, touring with the story and, um, and Thought maybe I would come back and finish, but then you know, life had other other plans for me.
1: <laughs> How did you meet the story?
2: Um, Jonathan was uh, so it was those two singers, Jonathan Brooke and, and Jennifer, Jennifer Kimball, and um, Jonathan had attended a summer semester, and she was hanging out around Berkeley. And I met her and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had a crush on her. You know, I didn't know what she did, but she was cute. And uh, and uh, we started dating and she played me a live tape of the group, of the duo. And they, uh, like I said, I was a real jazz head. But there was this one tune she put this E Cummings. um, Yes. Or they, I I don't know how much. uh, I know I've worked closely with Jonathan. I don't know how much, you know, uh, Jennifer was involved in the, um, you know, in the whole process. I she had some involvement, but that particular tune, I don't know. But the bottom line is, it was this E. Cummings uh, song, uh, poem called uh, Love is More Thicker Than Forget. Right. And uh, and Jonathan was playing piano, and it is this totally wild harmony. And I thought, well, that is really dope. So <laughs> um, I decided that, and then... I realized that, um, um, well, then we got married in uh, 88, I think, and Mm -hmm. it was 88, and the request for these live tapes was just touring it. Nice. So I thought, we got to do a proper demo. (laughs) <laughs> so we went to the studio. I had no studio experience except like going in, playing jazz. And, and um, we did a little demo uh, of just the two of them on the guitar. And then we demoed that song as well on the piano. And um, it was a long time ago, so I'm trying to uh, you know recall. But uh, I think the demo was called Over Oceans. And it uh, found its way to a little label called Green Linnet. I remember that, yeah. And they signed a little folk, folk label out of Connecticut, I believe. And uh, they signed the group. And we had, uh, we didn't want to do a folk record. So I had this friend, an amazing drummer and producer named Ben Whitman. Uh who was playing with a lot of local bands and he played me a demo of uh one of his songs. He actually had this friend of ours, Olga Roman, who's a singer from Spain. She now uh, she's the chair of the um Valencia program in, in at Berkeley in Spain. And um he had done this song with her singing. And uh, it sounded like Pete, Peter Gabriel meets, I don't know, it was so dope. And I said, Ben, co- come and check out the story. So he he came to see a, a live gig and he loved it. So we decided to do a demo. Nice. Uh, I just piggy- piggybacked, you know, on, on, on his skills because he was like so... You know, he had so much experience, he knew stuff that I had no idea was going on. And um, so I remember how it went down. Uh, We didn't want to make a folk record. So um, we told Green Linnet that we had this idea for doing a record with the music that was a little more uh, maybe involved production wise. And I recall that we went in the studio with Ben, Mike Rivard, who's still here locally, a great bass player who uh, has this uh, band called uh, Club Delft. That's his, you know, his uh, pride project and uh, love project. And uh, Kevin Barry, um, so teaching at Berkeley, played guitar. And I just recall that we went in the studio and we did this one song called "Grace and Gravity," and uh, that became the name of the record. But the problem was that we took every bit of money that we had at the time. I mean, we we were broke. Yeah, we didn't have a car. I didn't, it was so it was two grand, and we went in the studio and we uh, we recorded that one song with all the production values that we had etc cetera, et cetera. and again remember at the time it was tape locking uh you know whatever we had like uh yeah and tape, you know like two, i mean 224 tracks yeah no not even are you kidding this was like a 16 and 16? uh it was a it wasn't even two inch it was like a one inch machine i forget what the studio was. that's, what this that's is not important but but the uh Uh, Yeah. So we did that one tune and the label, you know, they were used to doing folky kind of records. And I I know it was a little, a little bit of over their head, (laughs) Uh, but they were like, well, yeah, that's interesting, but let's hear some other things. And we were flat broke. So that was (laughs) a problem. So I remember we went to, we went back in the studio with just Ben and I, and we had done stuff on the four track, and cassette deck. Yeah, and and we went to a <laughs> studio. Do you remember that studio that's in the alley uh, next to Haviland? Uh, yeah, where the, uh, I forget what it was. And and Scott Gilman was working there, and, and uh, Andrew Murdoch was the engineer. Okay, uh, it was a little hole in the wall. Yes, there were a bunch of. Uh, um a bunch of rehearsal rooms and studios there so we went back in there and i remember like ben recorded live cymbals that was the only besides the vocals it was the only (laughs) live stuff that was and and the acoustic guitar and everything else was programmed the keyboards were programmed the the drums were programmed (laughs) and so we sent the we sent you know another like three or four tunes to the label and so they they signed us, and then it went very fast. They signed us. the record came out. we went on the road. That's when I left berkeley um and then uh Jonathan was just giving away the the c d s um left and right to anybody who um was interested <laughs> and somehow it uh the city fell in the hand of, um, um, to this day, you know, one of my greatest heroes, Tommy Lipuma. Oh, wow. Student. And I remember the day he called us at home and uh, and Jonathan didn't know who he was because he was more of a jazz guy, you know? Sure, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like Evans and Natalie Cole and all that, Benson, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and she's looking at me and she's going like, Tommy Lee Puma? <laughs> <And, laughs> what? <laughs> so I said, yeah, talk to him. So he was uh, the head ANR at uh, Electra. Yes. And that's how it happened. They, uh, they signed us to uh, Electra. They bought the contract from um, Green Lynette. The, yeah. Right. The deal from Green because um, uh, And I remember it was, it was my first... Uh, Really painful dealings with the uh, record industry. I, I I was never a big fan. I mean, there's a reason why I have nothing to do with it uh, these days. Um, <laughs> uh, but I remember the, uh, sitting down at the negotiation table when um, when Green Linnet was basically trying to pretend that they were gonna, you know. They needed to be paid a gazillion mm-hmm. dollars because they were gonna you know we were basically you know electro was taking away their cash cow oh my goodness and and, and that was <laughs> ridiculous i mean they would they would never have been able to do anything with the group um no uh, so they would you know so but it happened and um and uh then yeah and that was it and, and then um the rest is yeah you know, whatever Mm-hmm.
1: That's fantastic because I had the Green Linnet release and Grace and Gravity. Oh. And then, of course, I, I have so many of Jonathan's solo albums as well mm-hmm. and a couple mm-hmm. of Jennifer's. But mm-hmm. I loved the sound. I loved the arrangements and I loved the merging of the styles. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't realize till I heard Jeff Lynne say it on a BBC special, that he loved pop rock because it was all the styles. So many people have said to me over the years, like, well, what style is your music? And I used to say pop rock or art rock, but they were looking for, I want to do jazz. I want to do a Latin beat. I want to do a a specific Mm -hmm. thing, a rumba. Mm -hmm. I want to do whatever swing, whatever to your Mm -hmm. song. And it doesn't fit. It's like you've got to do something that fits the song and harmonically, Mm -hmm. because I grew up listening to Chicago and the Beatles and Stevie Wonder and Carly Simon and folks that just had such a beautiful sense of all the chords, Mm. anything goes, especially all the standards and the great guitar players that influenced me at the time. So your work really stood out to me because it was like you're juggling those two worlds, the world that helped Joni Mitchell become more mainstream but understood the richness of her vocabulary and what she was doing harmonically that she needed jazz players to interpret those chords, especially in alternate tunings that she played and wrote in. And then Jonathan was doing the same. It was much richer harmony going on. And so how did you then start arranging and and producing from that? Just being at those sessions and knowing what the song needed?
2: Uh, Well, uh, okay, so, you need to know that now in retrospect um and in i suppose it's probably the same for a lot of people but um the story has changed <laughs> well i no i mean it's it's, it's not in, in retrospect first of all uh the first record um grace gravity was um you know, that was so much band. I was, you know, I remember the first time he decided to do more than three takes of vocals. I was like, mm. I think I, t- I stormed out of the studio. I thought it was stupid. <laughs> now I can do 30 <laughs> takes of, stu- of, 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 of vocals and remember the bits that I li- liked from each take, you know? But yeah. I didn't have those kind of chops at the time. And, um, and I remember, I mean, Jennifer sang great, Jonathan sang great, but what the hell is wrong with, you know, with what we just did? And he was just looking for something else. And he was the first guy that I saw really kind of dig in and, and, and look for, and we butted head on a lot of things too, you know, like musically speaking. I mean, uh, I, you know, I was a keyboard player, so I wanted to put keyboards everywhere. And, uh, and, uh, you know, um, so in retrospect, um, what we had in—well, I'm not going to speak for Ben. Uh, I think he was a lot more mature than I was at the time, musically speaking. But for me, it was like I was—I uh, had skills. Let's let's put it this way: uh, how much or how, li- how little is not for me to to decide. But I had skills and I was dead set on using them so when I listen back to those records what I'm what I'm hearing is me flexing flexing my musical muscles like as much as I possibly can (laughs) does it fit Uh, does it fit (laughs) no but I mean it's it's important to say because you know now I have to like uh I have to share my experience with young musicians and I don't want them to think that ignorance is bliss. And we were ignorant, man. I I I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I heard a backbeat, then I, that's it. It was a rock tune. Or if I heard like a you know, a, a slight syncopation, it was a funk tune. And so that's why like those records are all over the place, musically speaking, because mm. uh we went all the way well, as far as we could in every direction that the music suggested to us. Um, I don't produce like this anymore, (laughs) uh, thank God, because, you know, as much as I recognize people's right to have a, um, a fondness for those records, I don't, Find them particularly compelling, personally, uh, musically speaking. I think the singing is still great, and some of the songs hold up. But um, uh, as far as my work is concerned, I, you know, I'm, uh, it makes me uh, gives me a rash every time I listen to it.
1: <laughs> you mean ten Wings and Plum?
2: No, 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 no. That's when, so that 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 was different because when Jonathan went solo, that's that's also when Ben decided to leave the group. Right. And so it was the first time that, uh, um, that uh, I found myself at the helm, again, for better or worse. And we did this record, Plum, and I had, I was starting to sense already that I needed to do things differently. Plus I I didn't want to try to replace Ben because Ben Whitman was such a, you know, a great um, uh, musician in his own right. And his, uh, his touch is all over those first two records, uh, mm. the and Angel in the House. Mm-hmm. So, um, So I knew that if I had any chance as at making a successful record on my own, I shouldn't try to recreate whatever it was that we did together. Right. I made a very different record. Uh, There are so many funny stories surrounding this record, but Plum, Plum, that was the name of the record, Jonathan's first solo record. That was recorded live um, we were all in one room, the guitar amps were upstairs on the gazebo, <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, the bass, forget if we, if we amped the bass, I think we might have, but, uh, it might've been direct. Um, and then Abe Laborel, uh, was playing drums. And he, and there was an acoustic piano and I had some keyboard parts, but mostly I was playing acoustic uh, and some other instruments. Uh, I forget if I played those live or I was overdone. It's kind of fuzzy. But I remember, <laughs> I remember that uh, uh, Abe had an 18 inch hi-hat. Abe is a huge guy. Yeah. Just like he's tall and huge. He's a big guy, you know? And uh, so his drums are like, you know, they take up a lot of room, even though he doesn't have a lot of toms. So, you know, it's just like, he looks like he's in slow motion whenever he's playing drums. I mean, yes, if anybody's seen him before <laughs> McCartney, it's just like, it's ridiculous, yeah. you know? So and I knew of him when he was at Berkeley, when he was a student. I yeah. knew him when he was at Berkeley. And when I called him actually to to play drums with us, he was playing with SEAL. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I remembered him from Berkeley. And you know, and Ben was yeah. a great drummer. So I thought I, mean, I love drummers. I gotta have a great drummer. And I remember Abe. And but then I I am so I'm looking for his number and I find out that he's playing with Seal. <laughs> That's a long shot. <laughs> and uh, but we sent him the music and he had just quit Seal. And he you know, lo and behold, he ended up spending two or three years with us, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was actually, I think he really liked uh, some of the music, you know. uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Certainly, uh, certainly he had other opportunities. Um,
1: It's great stuff. I've even uh, uh, tried to get in touch with Jonathan to to do one of these, because I've always loved her work. It'd be great uh, to get into the songwriting, getting into the songwriting process would be cool.
2: Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, that's how Plum ended up being what it is because we were, it's a very live record. Mm. Everything was kind of improvised uh, on the fly because Abe is also like a very, you know, like the, the process was different. Ben and I used to work out all the arrangements in advance, so we walked into the studio fully, everything was fully fleshed out. mm Again, to a fault, uh, because I used to be so paranoid about stuff not sounding like the demos that, I mean, mm-hmm. Duke Levine, who plays on the, those records, and, uh, and Mike, my God, how we stayed friends. I'm not even sure.
0: <laughs> it's hard. <I> mean, <laughs> on the first
2: record, I made them play note for note Yeah, the stuff that I had programmed. I was such an asshole. It was (laughs) unbelievable. I have Uh, been that person. (laughs) I I was so paranoid. Uh, You know, I thought basically, and people think it's arrogance. It's not that, it's fear. I was afraid (laughs) of anything that I didn't understand or that I didn't know. You know, I didn't realize what great musicians they were until I had a chance to work with them a little more. And so, to me, they were just like people who were gonna do my little parts, and you know. Yeah. And, but anyway, so fast forward. So we, we're doing this record, and <laughs> and 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 it's it, it was funny because anything that had piano, I mean, basically there was hi hat in every drum, but there was hi hat in the piano, in the piano mics. There was like you know. Oh sure. and, uh, I remember that uh, uh, Elliot Shiner, who uh, a dear friend and and. You know, to this day, I mean, he mixed my own records, et cetera, et cetera. Um, He had mixed uh, The Angel in the House. And so, of course, he was tapped for for uh, mixing Plum. And we were in the studio and he would put up those tracks and he'd be <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do with this? There's like drums in everything. And- <laughs> But he heard the demos and the roughs, and the roughs and this rough sounded okay. And ben Wish was the engineer who tracked it. Ben Wish did uh, Mark Cohen and people like that, you know. Yeah. And Ben was a great engineer and producer in his own right, but he had a particular vision for the sound. And yeah. so that's, he's princ- principally the reason why the, this record sounds the way it does. And so we kept sending, you know, I, I remember we were downtown and I would go uptown to, to uh, in New York City to give uh, Tommy the, the mixes. And he kept rejecting them. And after the third one, I remember Ben came to, uh, ben came to visit while we were mixing because he wanted to uh, hang out with Elliot. Uh, and I walk in, and this is the third mix that Tommy is not happy with. Oh, and what did Elliot- he like? What didn't he like? (laughs) It would be as if somebody was, you know, I mean, I'm a decent pianist. I can do a fair amount of things. But if you put me on a Dixieland gig, I don't know what to do. Mm. Those are the same chords. There's the same 12 notes. I just don't understand what's going on. I mean, you know, I understand. I just don't have a sense of what I'm supposed to do. And I think Elliot, to his credit, you know, one of the most great, graceful um, engineer that I know, um, kept struggling to make it sound like him, ah, because the because the the raw material was not didn't make sense to him, but right. it made sense to Ben, so okay. to Ben which so so when uh, when I came in. After you know playing that mix for Tommy, the second time, the third the third mix, rather, I walk I, I walk back into the studio and Elliot is looking at me and goes, "He hates it." <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a pup, you know. I this isn't the third record that I'm involved like. with. They just gave me a shit of money to make a record. I'm on my own. I'm responsible for all these great musicians, all these great music, and, and these
1: engineers, and trying to calm everybody's concerns.
2: Right, and and Elliot is a god, and and, and, yes. and how am I supposed to look at him and go, yeah, your your mixes are shit? You know that's Jesus,
0: <laughs>
2: it's not because uh, that wasn't the case even. But El- uh, you know, Tommy could like reject. It. I, I would never have done that. To me, they were like perfect you know so he I would turns love to, to ben, hear those in comparison to the album you know i might have some dad somewhere actually that's, a, that's yeah. interesting i forget um but then he turns to ben wish who was standing there and elliot goes ben you should mix this record and ben's like no 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 you know yes <laughs> like no you should mix this record because Tommy heard the, the roughs and he liked them. And he he was right because the first uh, angel in the house, when we sent the roughs, he hated the roughs because the, the tracking engineer uh, did the roughs and he, he didn't like them. And so the fact that he liked the rough was actually really telling. And- uh, Two different people. Yeah, 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 Tommy, yeah, exactly. Tommy liked the roughs, but- that Ben Wish did for for Plum, and someone so, else didn't. Uh, no, the engineer in the house was a different engineer, okay. who shall remain nameless because I don't want to embarrass him about this rough story. He's a great engineer, but that's besides the point. Um, and uh, so. Ben ended up mixing the record and and it's a very to me it was a very it's a great learning experience because I realized that you got to do what you know hmm. music in or anything else you got to talk about what you know and 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 Elliot it's not like he didn't like the music but he didn't know what to make of those sounds but those sounds made sense to Ben because he tracked it with a, partic- a particular aesthetic in mind. And that was it. So we remixed the record. I mean, we, we, we restarted with, with we Ben Wish. It again. Um, yeah. And it was, um, you know, it sold dozens of copies. <laughs> yes, it
0: did. <laughs> now, to
1: me, when I was a kid, I felt like, arranging and producing were pretty separate things, except that I loved that George Martin was such a great arranger, and I felt like that made him such a fantastic producer. Now the terms get broader and broader, and some of these producers are not only watching the budget, but they're doing the arrangements, they're playing half the instruments, maybe they're even co-writing. It's getting crazy as far as what is responsible for each label and what they actually do. How do you consider yourself and do you have any separate definitions
2: of what you think those are for you? Uh, being, a mus- uh, uh, being a musician, I thought was an asset back then. Um, <laughs> you don't think it is now? <laughs> no, not so much. No, really, I I, I, I mean it. Being musical <laughs> and being a musician is, are two different things. Uh, no, I, I, I'm dead serious because... I know great producers who can't tell, a, you know, a minor chord from a plate of pasta. But I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, there are very famous stories about people asking, you know, horn players to, you know, if they can't play it up the octave, playing it half, up half an octave or something like that. You know, like uh, things that don't a make lot sense of to the instrument. Very yeah. funny stories like that. And yeah. these aren't necessarily bad producers. As a matter of fact, some of these guys are amazing producers. Well, like Rick Rubin, uh, right? Rubin, uh, which, well, like, oh, uh, yeah, Rick uh, Rubin, you mean. Not yeah. a player,
1: not a writer, but, you Is no. he not? I didn't know that. Um, yeah, he just knows how things feel and what kind of yeah. things he likes and yeah. he can bring out the best in people.
2: Yeah, um, probably. I mean, uh, I, in, in Nashville, a lot of these producers just open the door, make sure the musicians are there and split <laughs> because they're doing record copies. They do, they're redoing the demos. The demos are really involved right. uh, and uh, made by great musicians. And then they, they get the top notch musicians and basically they leave it up to the engineer to capture, you know, with the top musicians what was on the demos. So there's nothing for them to do basically. Maybe they get involved with the vocals. Um hmm
1: so they're just watching the
2: budget well i don't want to speculate as to what it is that they do because uh i've also learned to speak more from my own experience than trying to you know understand what other people do uh i have some former students who are now starting to be successful as producers and I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, I I really don't, and they've tried to explain it to me. I don't know how they're monetizing their work. I, I have no idea. Um, you mean with the beats and just making a a groove? Yeah, I mean to me it was you know like my my generation is we get points on uh, on records and you sell records and if you go past your recording budget then or marketing budget then you start making.
0: percentage of the records and that's how you made
2: sure you know that's how you how you made your money um but what I meant earlier is that being a musician uh had the unfortunate consequence of putting my musicianship ahead of actually the work that I was doing and and that's a mistake that I would not necessarily make Again. But uh, yet
1: they're hiring you because of your musicianship.
2: I think they're hiring me because I get results. uh, Sure. And 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 um and those reasons, they're not exactly sure how those results come about. Yeah. Hopefully. Because let's face it, you know, after like I mean, first of all, whatever little reputation i got whatever little you know vibe i got i got because of some very specific records um mm. jonathan and jennifer were part of a movement uh the triple a movement was born with them with sean colvin with uh, yes patty larkin with uh um uh, what's her name um uh, leaving Las Vegas. Um, oh yeah, Cheryl Crow. Cheryl Crow. You know um, these people. Triple A was. I don't know what it means now. Actually, I don't know if it means the same. at the time, it adult meant adult alternative uh, acoustic or something like that. Yeah, that's, uh, it, at the time, it was adult acoustic alternative. That's yeah, what yeah, it. And yeah. It, Maybe it means the same thing. I, w-
1: I was and, in that category too, and so was my friend
2: Sarah Burrow. We were marketing. yeah, for yeah. yeah. And, her and she, record there. So it was an answer to all the other music that was avail- uh, available and, and that was, and, um, and by the way, uh, this might be a, of interest to some of your listeners. Uh, you, you'll you notice that all the artists that I mentioned were women and uh, most Young women who are doing their thing now—they can't even imagine what it was like to be a woman in that business back then. I mean, we—you know—we had to listen to guys tell tell us we can't put you in the rotation because we're already playing a woman this today. That's what I heard all the time. Yeah, Yeah. we've already added a woman to the playlist. Yeah, yeah, we already have a woman in the playlist. I mean, uh, in in my opinion, the one who changed everything was Alanis. Uh, She just wrote the rules for everybody and she just made it possible single-handedly for all these women to, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, like Bonnie Raitt before her and and Tina were, you know, I'm not saying that they weren't great women artists, but Mm -hmm. you know, Alanis just broke the, the ceiling <laughs> right up you know and, uh, it was it was incredible all of a sudden how you do you remember more than, was that if you're giving her credit for that what,
1: what would you say was the thing that did that for her how did she do that
2: <laughs>
0: she,
1: she was
2: amazing <laughs> <laughs> she was amazing and and uh and uh i mean jagged little pill was just yeah you know it was Edgy with but pop and rocking at the same time. It was, it it had everything that
0: uh, was necessary
2: to, you know, to basically open the doors for a lot of other women and And again, I mean, you know by then, Cheryl was already popular, and there were there were other artists that were popular, but they were still dealing with the same shit you know, and then here comes Alanis, and then she's spending you know months and months at the top with several singles, you know singles of the wazoo, and uh. You know then all of a sudden, like radio stations are like, "Oh, we can make money with chicks yeah sure let's 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 put them <laughs> on the wall. No? no i mean listen i i'm i'm you know uh i i am I'm, I'm using this type of uh vocabulary perp- you know purposefully because yeah, that's what you were uh, told that's sure. literally what you Could know so. what 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 would be we would be told, so I think that you know. But getting back to you as an arranger and a producer, yes, yeah, so as, as so, I uh, digress. So as an arranger, well, what, what it means is that uh, uh people that are not musicians are not tempted to put themselves above the music, above the song.
0: Okay,
2: and uh I think back then. I want it to be an, uh, as important a part of the process as the songs themselves.
0: Mm.
2: Not, I don't think I, it was, yeah, it was arrogance. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the thing that changes that for most people, at least it did for me, is that, you tap out. So what I'm saying is that, you know, I got a little vibe because of those pseudo jazzy, folky records, you know, pop pop, rock records that I was making. So then all these, I'm getting all these requests to produce stuff that are essentially the same music. So I find myself drying out after a while because I wasn't, be- Being a musician. Well, I I, I I was doing everything. Oh. You know, I was getting all these artists that were, you know, uh, basically singer with with his or her guitar. And then everything else I have to imagine. So I'm making the beats. I'm making the, you know. Uh, and You have to beat the whole band, yeah. People who know me know, know that me making a beat, it's not, you know, I don't do trap. You know, it's not like... A, It's not a clap on two and four and like an 808. It's, you know, every song has to be like, you know, I'm reinventing the wheel. I don't even, I I still to this day don't have any libraries of sound. Every every time Mm -hmm. I start, I just start, I spend hours just looking for inspiration. So uh, after a while, I started realizing, oh man, that's starting starting to sound a lot like, something I've already done, <laughs> probably. And I mean, at this point, the thing I would love to do the most would be to produce a group. Yes. Give me YouTube, give me, you know, radio hair, like people, like, yeah, you know, artists where everybody has like something to contribute and where I don't have to, you know, tap into my limited, uh, you know, bag of tricks
0: mm-hmm.
2: to get one again, recreate something that somebody liked 30 years ago or 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. Uh, so then what would
1: you do as a producer, since you wouldn't be doing half of the finding the parts or the sounds?
2: Listen more. Let, let the song, you know, produce itself.
1: But still there's the interpretation of taking that live sound in the room. And making it translate well onto the recorded medium.
2: I'm not saying that I would just like sit in, you know. I know, but that's what I'm asking you like, and, and And, you know, sip some single malt or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I would still do some shit, but, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, what <laughs> I would you be doing? <laughs> but, you know. It, um,
1: well, you'd probably still work with them to make sure it was in the right key, perhaps, for the vocalist
2: or. Oh yeah. I mean, pre-production, that's, that's key. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: And, uh, and you would notice if something was clashing harmonically or, you know, all those things. Of course. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that I want to turn into a moron so that I can be a better producer. (laughs) Uh, That's not at all the case. What I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you have guys who are, amazing producers and also amazing musicians. Like, you know, one of my heroes, Daniel Lanois, is a t- tremendous musician. I tremendous, love his work too. And, uh, and but his productions have a s- definite cachet, stamp. He has a sound, yeah. And then you take Don Was, who's also an amazing musician, and his producing productions seem to really kind of like its like it's hard to tell if it was him or you know, it just sounds great. but you know, it's an incredible melding that these folks do, though. there is
1: some kind of special sauce that Don has versus Dan versus anybody that would be in that caliber of production expertise, yeah. and like I like Don with. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones or with uh, Bonnie Raitt, you
2: can just tell it's Don. And you can tell it's Dan. But not in the same way, because you can recognize... I, I can't recognize Don Juan's parts. It seems like he really lets people speak, whereas, like, Daniel always seems to to have a, not just a sound, not just an aesthetic, but, like, musical parts that seem to belong to Daniel Lanois. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I, I would not, you know, to me, they're not. They're just equally great, just not in the same way, necessarily. But yes. they're both musicians. Yes. Uh, you have guys, uh, you know, other great musicians uh, that are uh, great producers. Um, blanking on his name now. Used to be married to Joni Mitchell, produced. Uh, oh, Kevin Klein. Yeah. Kevin, uh, no, uh, Larry Klein. Larry Klein, thank you. Larry, amazing, um, amazing producer, amazing musician. Yes. But I've also hung out with people that are just like, like, like I said, they they wouldn't be able to tell you if a chord, if you're playing a dominant chord on on a major seven <laughs> chord, they don't know. Yeah. But sometimes they leave it there it's super cool because the song still speaks yeah
1: that's like the beatles song michelle when they're playing a minor seven and a dominant seven sharp
2: nine at the same time and it's like what's going on there well i didn't even notice that i'd have to go back and 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 listen to this right before my bell (laughs) yeah but i mean so yeah now you know um and so this is what's interesting. Actually, I, you know, like a few years back, I produced a, a record for a young, a young woman who was local here. She moved to LA now, um, and I was determined to, even though she was, you know, folky with her guitar, and she she wasn't particularly musically. Um you know technically educated and she had a lot of talent and uh nice. but I was determined to let other people do their thing a little more, you know, except when we when there was really no clear direction for the song, and uh I end up. Mixing, it was a very small budget, not ridiculous, but small. And cool. uh, I end up, somebody recommends a, uh, a local mixer, a local engineer. Uh, and he had done a lot of blues stuff. And I I, um, I remember liking what I heard. So I thought, well, that would be a nice aesthetic for this record. So let me call him up. Uh, Ducky Carlyle is his name. Hmm. I remember correctly. Ducky Carter, And um he's a bit of a character too. He's a funny guy and uh so <laughs> I go and drop off the tracks and he's like yeah let me start so and I was like mm, okay well okay I'll let you but you know I might have to uh, uh so he calls me up He's like yeah I got a uh, I got a couple Tracks ready, won't you come in and listen and make sure we're in the right you know right direction so i go back to his house and uh <laughs> sitting in the couch and he starts playing the the track and it sounds really good he's, he's doing a great job
0: and i'm like man
2: you're mixing this record like you like the music <laughs> I know, but I, I don't take it for granted. You know, engineers—they have to do—they have to make a living. And you know, if you're going from a death metal to a folky record to a jazz thing, whatever. I mean, you know, if you have let's say if you have the versatility to do this, um, I can't expect that you will like all the music equally, right? So I, I said that. I said, "Man, it sounds like you actually like the music." Uh, and he goes. And he goes, you know, I do. It actually reminds me of this record that I put on whenever I'm uh, whenever I'm working on some things in the studio that I love listening to this record. It's a record called Plum by an artist named Jonathan Brooke. <laughs> and I go. I go, you're fucking with me, right? <laughs> no. Oh, why? He says, but do you know who produced this record? no i i I can't say that i paid attention to them i said well i did (laughs) so i guess i can't you know even when i'm trying to be hands-off i can't help but have a you know a certain aesthetic that's why i would
0: love i would love to work
2: uh like the, the last couple of years I did I did something that was very interesting. I have this friend named Andy Snitzer, who is a great sax player. We 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 were in Paul Simon's band together. And uh he um uh, he does these um he has a bit of a vibe with the the smooth jazz people. You know, he gets on those charts, et cetera. Et cetera. He's a great player, you know, he's one of the top studio guys in New York and um So he used to send me these records where I would just take a few road solos and stuff. And little by little, uh, he started just asking me to do more. So I would send a bunch of stuff and usually would just take out 90% of it and just keep like a little, there or like, you know. (laughs) Uh, But the last two records, (laughs) basically, he started just loving the stuff that I was sending him. I I don't think this is because what I was, sending was better. It's just that I think he was probably more open because he was tired of his his own stuff. Like, we all get tired of our own stuff after a while. And, and I love that relationship. I mean, some of the tunes, literally, so now I'm credited as co-producer, you know, uh, on the records. And, and, and some of those tunes I literally have taking what he sent me and just erased everything and we did, (laughs) you know, and half of the time, or maybe 80% of the time when I do this, he just throws it out and just keeps my Rhodes part or my synth part or like, but then sometimes he loves it even better than his version. And I love that relationship because it's not, I don't have a vested interest. In it, it's just what I do. You're trying a bunch of things and whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm. Well, when you play this, it makes me think of this. Mm. And sometimes he likes his version better. But either way, I don't get offended because I'm not trying. You know. And so we've done two records like that. The the new one just came out, and it's also like you know I'm not involved in this world at all, (laughs) at all. In his world, did you say? Yeah, in the smooth jazz world. Oh, the smooth I did, jazz. I did world. one yeah. record for for uh, Verve a while back for Gabriela Anders, a singer from Argentina, but that was as smooth as I possibly could get. <laughs> uh, that was it. Everything else, you know, has been like. Um, so, um, yeah, I love when people have a vision. Hmm. when i'm when I'm supposed to provide a vision for their record, I mean at this point i I don't even do it anymore yeah i, I I'm tapped out i I, I don't have well, in I don't a sense have idea. was I? in a sense it's too much work, you know And it's not original work yeah you know it's not good work because yeah. i'm not, I'm not challenged to make it different. yeah so. So it, you know, I, I am basically, and if I do it, then I'm, I'm basking in my own mediocrity, uh, you know, constantly because, yeah. you know, repeating yourself. I mean, unless you're doing basic stuff, you know, like
0: right.
2: one person with her or his voice and a guitar, that's timeless, you know. But the second you try to like, you know, and I've run into this so much with with young artists, you know, um, people who wanted me to do with their music, what I did with records that they loved. And sometimes you have to have tough conversations. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I mean, you said it yourself, you know, there was, by the way, uh, my, involvement with the stories music you know you could also say that it was a mixed blessing i mean you know clearly after we split up you know jonathan tried to do things a little poppier and less jazzy et cetera, et cetera. and i hope it worked out for her i'm not sure what it, what it meant from a, a commercial uh, perspective but my involvement might have been a, a mixed blessing because you know when she puts all these tensions on these chords. I'm going like, yeah, baby, yeah, let's go. You know? <laughs> As opposed to, you know, what any other producer would go, would say, which would be, can we take some of those out? Maybe like yeah. can we, can we try triad every, every <laughs> once in a while, on, you know. I had uh, done some uh, some pre-production stuff with Mark Hurd.
1: He had produced a few songs for me back in 1987 and even a major seven. He said, do you mind if you just play a major chord there? <laughs> I was like... What's going on, you know? It's like if you take off too many of the spices, you're starting to chip away at what's making that artist that artist, you know? And so some of the things you're describing sound to me as everybody experimenting with flavors. And it's not to say this one was too spicy and this one wasn't spicy enough or this one went too far or this one didn't. I mean, when it starts going into commerce land, I could see where people will say this sold because of this or didn't sell because of that. And that's just a theory. But As far as the artist and the producer working on different colors and things, why not? And why not look back and talk about or even look at all of it as if it was good? Because there were aspects of it that were good. And and then for you now, it's like, of course you want to grow. Of course you want to do something that challenges you. And of course it takes a while to figure out in terms of words, what is it that we're after now in our lives right now? What is going to be the most inspiring thing to be a part of?
2: This has been cool. It's been my pleasure. Uh, thank you for asking. And uh, I'm glad we, we did this. And uh, yeah, uh, if I need to clarify something or if I swore too much, just uh, clean it <laughs> up.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for saying yes, because I still think you're a fabulous musician and uh, I've really
2: enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh I I don't know about fabulous. I think fantastic is a better word, but um, uh,
1: <laughs> fantastic <laughs> um, too. Excellent. <laughs> yeah.
2: Right. Um, no, I I, um, I appreciate your support um, and um, and the support of all the people who have trusted me with uh, making music with them over the years. It's it's been very meaningful. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, like I said, and, and, and I meant it, I, you know, I never took it for granted that there was any worth to, um, um, to what I was doing. The only proof that I had was when the phone was ringing, you know, uh, and still I didn't, I wasn't sure if it was ringing because the other 10 guys before me were unavailable. So, you know, you still, you're not completely sure, but, you know, um, did you do well, it, you I must have well. been—you
1: must have been vibrating well because you attracted it. You got it. You lived it. You have the memories to prove it. You've got a lot of music in your catalog, and uh, mm-hmm. you look back at all this—all these titles—and uh, they still yeah, it.
2: Right. Maybe I hope you are right. From, yeah, I hope, I hope you're right. Um, but yeah, so. <laughs> It's, it's been fun. Thanks for asking me, and uh, I guess I'll be seeing you uh, on campus, huh? Yep. Okay. Take good care. Thank you so much, Aileen. Take care,
1: on. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. Ala male. Check out his music. Check out the albums he's produced and the people he's worked with. Really great sounds, really cool playing, beautiful ideas, timeless music, fabulous sounds. Thank you so much, I have wanted to do this for a long time. That was really cool. For more of our conversation, check out the YouTube video on my channel. In the early days, rock and roll was supposed to be for young people, but when that happened, that was a brand new thing. You could do anything at any age. Look at Paul and Ringo and Mick Jagger. If you don't want to tour, stay in the studio, keep writing, keep recording, find new ways, reinvent yourself, change your name. Whatever you gotta do, keep on keeping on because that's more fun, and we're all still here. Woohoo! We just have to renew ourselves, dream new dreams, and choose thoughts that serve us. Thank you, Eric Maisel. <laughs> Thank you, El Male. Thank you, everybody. Go to your studio and make stuff. Feel good today.